I'm Tommy Salmons. This is year zero. I don't know how the noise is going to be on this. I don't know how the sound is going to be. I'm driving, actually. It's a Saturday. I've had a really, really messed up week, which is why y'all did not get an episode on Thursday. Um, so I'm going to record this and release it. Hopefully the sound is okay. And um, I will. I still plan on recording an episode on Sunday for y'all to have on Monday. Um, the breaking news today, if you haven't heard, is Jeffrey Epstein has committed suicide. I have plenty of theories about what's going on here. Um, and suicide is not one of those theories. Although suicide could very possibly be the case, but it would have taken a lot to get a man that just tried to commit suicide um, and was under suicide watch alone long enough to commit suicide. So um, either people were bribed and he was told he better succeed this time or somebody killed him. But we don't have a lot of information and I will be putting together an Epstein episode probably for next Thursday. So the article I'm working on right now um, will have to sit on hiatus until I get all the details I want to get. I honestly thought naively on my part that I would have time to do this uh, in the future. But apparently um, Epstein's not going to see a day in court, which I should have. I should have expected that. But I thought after the failed attempt the first time that eh, they're going to have him under lock and key. Nobody's getting near him. Nothing is going to happen to him. But with his high, his, his very powerful connections, I should have known better. Um, there were a lot of documents unsealed yesterday. Thousands of documents were unsealed yesterday. Um, naming, um, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, um, the daughter of a Mossad agent, um, and uh, Prince Andrew was among those named as people that were soliciting prostitution from Epstein. But like I said, I will. I, I'm really bad with names, and that's something I really need to write down, um, so that so that I make sure I get all the names correct and all the details correct. So that's a. Uh, that's going to be a future episode. I just wanted to give you all a heads up on that. Um, there was something I was thinking about. And when you're driving 10, 12 hours a day, you have a lot of time to sit in silence and think. And, uh, and, just contemplate different aspects of what people are saying, the the argumentation that that they're coming from. Um, I, I what I try to do, and, and one thing I learned to do at a very young age is is to when I read something, I learn I I, I spend a lot of time reflecting on how what I'm reading 
applies to everyday life. Okay. So whenever I was involved in church, I was, I would read the Bible and I would read the Bible looking for ways to incorporate what was being said in the Bible to everyday life. Uh, and, and I was actually pretty good at it. That's why I was teaching Sunday school um, to, to youth um, because they, they thought I was pretty good at it. So they put, asked me to, to, to assist with that. And I did for a while. Um, so when it comes to what I've been thinking about lately is where the constitution fits in the ideological spectrum. And the way I'm going to talk about this is going to be way outside the norm. Um, this will this will not incorporate your typical left-right paradigm. I'll explain where I'm coming from, why I'm saying what I'm saying, and what conclusions I'm drawing and, and how I'm getting there as I go along. But this is as much of a thought experiment and me w walking through my thoughts as it is my... I've determined I'm onto something. I trust that a few of you, maybe all of you, are smarter than I am. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, may draw upon these conclusions um, or, or, draw from these conclusions or from this this monologue um, and and come up with a with more sound theories and more solid evidence um, I put my phone on do not disturb so I'm hoping that we, we don't have any serious sound issues um, due to phone calls coming through or, or whatnot, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I might have to, I might have to re-record this. Um, we'll, we'll just play it by ear, so to speak. But, okay, so I've been thinking about Rothbard's essay left and right, and the prospects for liberty. And in the essay, Murray Rothbard gets into the history of the left and right. And, and we're not talking about the left-right paradigm as we see it today. He was discussing the originality of the left and the right. And on the right, you had the conservatives. And these were the people that wanted to preserve the monarchy. Um, today, you would have populists, nationalists, um, conservatives. These types of people would be within the confines of, of the right. 
Um, they're, they're looking to conserve the hierarchy of power. And on the left, you had like, like Frederick Bastiat and, and people of that ilk, people that were against the state and they wanted to reduce the state and they, they thought the state was immoral and they talked about the state being immoral and they, they fought tooth and nail within the, the parliament to reduce the size of the state. And the terms left and right came by accident of geography. Okay. The anarchist types like Bastiat were on the left side of the hall. And the conservative types sat on the right side of the hall. So there was a type of political segregation that was happening so that they could form their groups and have their discussions and make their arguments, you know, um, I guess without it turning into a bloodbath because <clears throat> as much as people don't want to see it, political discussion has always been heated and uh, has led to many battles and many, many deaths and much violence over the years. Well, during this time, a segment of the conservatives began to find themselves persuaded by some of the arguments of the anarchists, but not all of them. So you had this segment of the conservatives that adopted some of the anarchist views. Now, from what, what I'm understanding is basically they 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 say it they they looked at it and they said, oh, okay, I see where these anarchists are coming from. They're saying that the people are mistreated, the 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 average citizenry aren't thought of during during rule. So. What we need is a more socially coherent ideology that incorporates the hierarchy with society so that there's a cohesion between the two and they can live harmoniously, right? Whereas the anarchists are saying, no, we need to get rid of the hierarchy, the monarchy, and the monarchy or the conservatives are saying we need to preserve the monarchy and its power and its, and its rule over, over the land. You had this other group and they, call, they started calling themselves socialists because they were for the social cohesion, right? Now, this was prior to any major economic writings. There was no Karl Marx at this time. All right. So this was prior to the development of the United States as a nation. But from these from these groups, from these sides, you ended up with movements. And within these movements, 
the socialists began to appropriate the term left because they didn't have a home on the right. And the conservatives and the socialists, and this is kind of my interpretation of what happened, but the conservatives and the socialists kind of conspired together to push out the anarchists. Because they, they said, well, at least we both agree that there should be a state. That we should, to some degree, preserve the hierarchy, the monarchy, the government. Excuse me, my sinuses are really bothering me this morning, so I'm sorry if that's gross. I, I really apologize. Um, so, from this, from these arguments, the socialists ended up taking over the left side of the hall, pushing the anarchists out of the discussion altogether, which was good for the state because the state remained, right? So now, you, now today you have this paradigm of the far right are the nationalists and the far left are the, are the socialists. And the anarchists have no home whatsoever, whether left or right. But if you look further left, you keep going left. That's where you find the anarchists. They're way over there in the left. And I, without getting into the economics, I'm just talking about culturally, socially, the, the thoughts behind these things. I, I don't like when people assume intent, but what I'm trying to do is, is put these puzzles together within my own mind to help make sense of them for me. Uh, but it, because these little nuances are important to me. Okay. So if, if you're bored with this and you don't like it, I, I understand these are the types of things I spend hours, days, weeks thinking about. These are the things that are on my mind. So I apologize if uh, this isn't the most intriguing of subjects. But, okay, so my, my assumption or my presumption is that from this centrist socialist movement, the movement that wanted to decentralize the power. They wanted to create more cohesion between the state and the citizenry. That's where we ended up with the Constitution of the United States. Now, just left of that, a little closer to our anarchy, excuse me, was where we had the Articles of Confederation because that was, that robbed the nation of even more power. And so I look at the Founding Fathers, okay? And I'm going to take the, the famous, quote-unquote, famous debate between Michael Malice and Tom Woods. So Tom Woods was arguing in favor of Thomas Jefferson 
being the greatest founding father. And Michael Malice was arguing in favor of Alexander Hamilton being the greatest founding father. And what I'm looking at is that Jefferson approached the, the forming of the union as a federation of individual nation states with even without the economic sense of of a of a Mises or a Rothbard. He had the social sense and he had studied the Native Americans enough to understand that the the more that your quote unquote tribe your social f- fabric, the, the, the closer it was, the nearer it was to the family unit. And when I say family unit, I mean extended family, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But the nearer it was to the, the family unit, the more likely a socialist style of system would work, right? And so if you look at a family, you have your elder, whether it's your grandfather or grandmother or whoever, you have the elder. They're kind of like the top of the hierarchy. Then, then you have the parents, which are one rung below. Then you have aunts and uncles, one rung below that. Then you have the children. And this is just a simplified, you know, obviously, I didn't sit down and draw this out. Like I said, I'm... I'm I'm driving. I'm just simplifying this. And so you have a, a, a certain amount of hierarchy there. There's someone that's competent, you know, and I think Jordan Peterson has said it. He calls it the competent hierarchy, which I, I appreciate the language and I appreciate the way he, he describes it. And, and so you have this natural hierarchy of, of order within this family unit. But at the same time, you have this kind of Marxist ideal to each according to their need, from each according to their ability, right? And this is how a family structure works. So... So I think Jefferson was acutely aware of the fact that a socialist fabric within an agrarian society was was maybe not necessary, but was... uh, was probably the most cohesive way to organize societies. Okay. Um, it, it, it almost would, would default to a type of socialism because if you live within a society and you're living in an agrarian society and let's say I grow wheat and you're growing corn and Jim Bob over there is, is uh, farming, ranching cattle. And then Billy Bob has fucking potatoes, right? And and your corn crop doesn't come through. 
well, we want corn next year. And so just because your corn didn't come through this year doesn't mean that we're going to throw you to the fucking wolves. What we're going to do is we're going to say, oh, yeah, no, we'll handle it, dude. I, I understand everybody falls on hard times. Here, let me help you out. Let's make sure you get get through the winter, yada, yada, yada. And this is charity, right? And so, so Jefferson saw this as being a natural form of society, a natural voluntary cooperation between um, a community. Whereas Hamilton was more of a nationalist. He looked at, he looked at, he wanted skyscrapers and industry and central banking. And he was, this was his idea. Like what we see around us today in the inner cities, that is a Hamiltonian vision come to life. Probably beyond any expectations he could have ever had. And so necessarily out of this nationalist corporatist vision or this nationalist vision of, of corporate America, you ended up with, with wall street. You ended up with the conglomerate of government and business that, that creates this corporatist system in which we live under because that was in the, in the, nationalist view the conservative populist view um, that was that is the heart and soul of the nation whereas in the more socialist and we're talking culturally not economically so just Bear with me on that. I'm not getting into the economics of it. Um, But the more socialist, quote unquote, view was much more centered around the average everyday person, right? So what, what you had in in early times is you always had this struggle, right? You had the butting of heads between the, the federalist and the anti-federalist, you know, over these types of ideas. You had, uh, the Whigs and the Tories button heads over these types of ideas, but the ideas that had been abandoned were, were the anarchist ideas. But they weren't abandoned altogether. And Jefferson leaned to the side of anarchy. Like, he wasn't full-on anarchist. I would never put that on him. But he did lean in that direction. He wanted to preserve the Articles of Confederation. He thought the Constitution was a mistake. Um, There's a long article I read a while back about Jefferson's writings on taxes and on individual taxes being wrong altogether um so but he he even he's quoted as saying and i'm paraphrasing because i don't have the quote in front of me um 
he's he's quoted as saying, if I were to have to choose, well, he said something like, um, a, a, something about a small government or a government or a, or a state. I want to say, okay, I want to say it was a government and an honest media. An honest media is necessary for a government, but if I were to have to choose between an honest media and a government, I would choose uh, the honest media over the government. Like, so basically, like, we could do without government as long as we had an honest media. We don't even need a government. But an honest media is required for a government, right? So, and that's part of what we see today is the media is so dishonest in so many different ways. They've completely lost all trust. You know, when you're growing up and you have, you know, uh, like Tom Brokaw or whatever on 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 television every night, you know, and that's who you watch every night. You, you, it, it, it gains a sp- certain amount of trust from the viewer. But that was when we had four channels, you know, now there's infinite amounts of choices and everybody has their preferred method of receiving information. And that creates this divide. But the divide wouldn't even be necessary had the Jeffersonian view of the Federation of Independent Nations been preserved. Because then you could self-segregate if you were a person that wanted a state-controlled healthcare system, you can move to a society in which that were in place. And if you were a person that wanted to live in a more anarchist-style society, a more voluntarist society, you could find these communities popping up. But in in the state of things as we have today, that's not the way it goes. It's all or nothing nowadays. And this was much more of a Hamiltonian view. So I, I think about how they got us here. And I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, at one point when America was forming and Thaddeus Russell does a lot of talking about this and a lot of you, I know a lot of you guys that, that listen to me, listen to Thaddeus. And I know it's not because I'm on, I'm, I'm as knowledgeable. I, a lot of you that listen to me, I communicate with fairly regularly, but, <clears throat> but Thaddeus, he talks about, the nuclear family and what it did to the extended family. And when, when the colonies were first being settled, you had these large extended families coming over and in these large family units living together and working together and, and 
not to get into the all the like social difficulties of the nuclear family, but you know, like raising a child or raising five children or four children, it wasn't just on the mom and dad. It was on like the entire family participated. And so the mom and dad didn't have all the stresses of raising that child. And they were able to continue and focus on their own relationship in ways that is not possible today due to the amount of time required on raising children. But the, the destruction of this, this large unit was, was necessary. What, what these corporatists realized is that you had to create that cohesion between the, in the, within the family unit. You had to create that within, between a, a worker and his job, right? In order for the, the wheels, the mechanisms of this corporatist society to turn properly, the worker had to be willing to give up the the stable relationship-fueled interactions with his family in favor of the interactions between him and his workplace. In order to accomplish this, they had to design a federal banking system. And these, this was tried and tried and tried over the years before 1913 when the Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve Act was signed and that came into being and and that was the beginning of the end for the nuclear for the for the extended family or maybe it was the nail in the coffin maybe that's how they finished the job probably more likely that but they were looking to replace the family with the job but the problem they ran into is the resistance of the family to losing, at this point in time, losing the father, basically. They're losing their father 12, 13, 14 hours a day. So how do we do that? Well, we have to learn, we have to figure out a way to replace the father within the family. And this was all a function of industry, of corporatism. Was it a conspiracy in so much as a bunch of men sat around in a dark room smoking cigars? No. It was a conspiracy in so much as leaders of business and politicians got together in discussing how do we 
what are the functions that our industries and our, our, our corporations and our companies must serve in order to become an economic superpower? And in order to become an economic superpower, this is the type of production and this is the type of uh, like freedom, I guess, quote unquote, we'd have to have in operating our, our organization to assist in the U.S. becoming a superpower. By necessity, this demanded more of the worker. So the worker is spending more time at work, less time at home. And now the family is throwing a big hissy fit about the amount of time they get to see the worker. So necessarily, there was a problem that had to be solved. So how do we solve this problem? Well, we have now, what, public schooling and, you know, things of that nature to help solve that problem, help alleviate the stresses of the housewife at this time, the time that period I'm talking about, to help alleviate the stresses and the responsibilities of the housewife who's been cast into this role of a single parent. But in order to do that, there has to be more taxes. And so, so the more there were relief packages coming through from the government to relieve the home due to the absence of the father, the more taxes that w were necessary and the more spending that was necessary, the more money that was printed, the more inflation you got, right? And as you got inflation, the money that the father was making didn't go as far. So now the mother had to get out of the home and now she had to make money. Okay. Well, now she's out there making money and she's coming home. She's working eight hours, coming home, taking care of the kids, making sure they're fed, making sure there's food on the table when the husband gets home after his 14 hour shift. And she's just like, this is too much. If I'm going to do it all myself, you can go fuck yourself. So now we see the dissolution of the nuclear family, right? So now what? Now there has to be even a more, a larger responsibility of the government to replace the father because now the father's completely out of the picture. But we need the father in the factories. We need the fathers in the, in the industry creating, working the assembly lines, doing the hard physical labor 14, 15, 16 hours a day. So we can't allow the fathers to have their children, right? So we have to give the children to the mothers automatically as a nurturer because the father is needed elsewhere doing the hard work, doing the real nitty-gritty stuff for 14, 15, 16 hours a day. But the mother's going to need money from the father. So what we're going to do is we're going to have to charge the father child support. And if the mother makes under a certain amount, then we're going to have to also subsidize that income in order for her to acquire a certain standard of living. Right? So what I'm pointing out is 
that what what we have today, this this capitalist quote unquote system we have today, which I've had I've I've talked about my thought of the word capitalism before, <coughs> is is a function, is a direct correlation of the nationalism, the conservatism, and it, it draws a straight line, maybe more of a zigzag line, through to the Constitution. All right? But if you read the Constitution, in many ways, it's a mixed bag. There's nationalism, there's socialism. And I'm talking culturally again. There's nationalism, there's socialism. There's, there's this kind of <clears throat> understanding of, but there's also this kind of anarchist kind of aspect to it when you get into the protection of individual rights in the, in the Bill of Rights and this, that, and the other. They, there's this kind of anarchist side to the Constitution. So it's this mixed bag and this all stemmed from the arguments of the past, right? And so what we've seen is as the country has gone further along, these ideals have, have veered further and further apart, right? Well, whereas the anarchist views have gone in a straight line. There's a reason it's called consistency, because it's consistently, no, 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 that's not the way it should be done. You shouldn't be forcing or coercing people to do things this way. No, no, no. And in the process of, of this, this, this path that's been traveled, socialists in some manners like the, the cultural socialists in some manners have adopted some more conservative style tactics. The use of coercion and force in such a way that you create an atmosphere that, that people have no choice but to participate in your system and uh, the moralism um, is is a big one, um, which that might have been in, brought from the nationalist or the conservative movement um, when when the anarchists and the conservatives kind of merged to create this socialist outlook. But my my contention, I don't even know if contention is the right word. I'm, I'm still drinking coffee, so this is just something that was on my mind this morning. Um, so what I'm thinking <clears throat> is that when we view the left-right paradigm of the United States, we're looking at it all wrong. <clears throat> that we're, com we're leaving off the most consistent ideology around that we're looking at the two malleable 
inconsistent ideologies between socialism and nationalism. And we're completely forgetting that the libertarianism or the anarchism ideology excuse me brings something to the table. And there is a reason that a lot of anarchists, myself included, refuse to participate within the system as it is today. A lot of us sit back and we say, we've, we've watched you fuckers compromise and compromise and compromise. You've compromised the citizens. You've compromised our freedoms. You've compromised our, our families' lives, our children's lives, our brothers' lives. And we're tired of it. We're not going to compromise anymore. We're not going to go and spend our time standing in your line, participating in your elections to give someone else more power to compromise my life. It's my life, and you need to get the fuck out of it. And I think this is why you see the, the anarchist or libertarian-style movements growing the way they do. Because people have watched how compromise has destroyed the, the country and destroyed freedom, destroyed the ideas of, of what, what we are as individuals. And we're just not willing to compromise anymore. We're just saying, no, nah. It's nah, it doesn't work for me anymore. Not like that. That's not the direction we're going to go. We're not compromising with you. Your compromise only compromises me and I'm done compromising. So that's what was on my mind this morning. I thought maybe I have something worth putting out there because I don't know because I think I'm smart sometimes. But <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm Tommy Salmons. Late. <laughs>